0: Text for this morning's sermon is taken from the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1041. Titus chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men, training us to renounce irreligion and worldly passions and to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity, and to purify for himself a people of his own, who are zealous for good deeds. Declare these things, exhort and reprove with all authority, and let no one disregard you.
1: Well, we began this series some weeks ago with this question. What is the peculiar nature of biblical hope? And we answered, it is not finger-crossing. It is a confident expectation of good things to come. Confident. Hebrews uses the phrase, the full assurance of hope. Then we asked the question, Why can sinners like me and you Hope in a holy God. And we answered with two words. Grace and gospel. He loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. And then Paul goes on to say, do not shift from the hope of the gospel. So why can sinners hope in God? Because God's heart is a heart of grace that overflowed once in a gospel, namely, Christ crucified for sinners and risen victorious from the dead. And then we asked, how? After what? Why? We asked, how can I hope in God when my heart is not at all inclined to trust God? My heart is rebellious by nature against God. I would much rather by nature hope in money... ...or government... ...or health... ...or job. By nature, I do not hope in God. How then shall I do it? And we answered, new birth. By His great mercy... He has begotten us anew unto a living hope. And then the second question, a how question, we asked was, all right, I have been touched by the living God and brought from death to life and been given a heart, disposed to hope in God, but how can I hope when there are no promises to hope in? And we answered that question with, Romans 15:4 Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that by the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we may have hope. We do have promises. The whole Bible that verse says is written for one reason to give us something to hope in. And then last week we sort of gathered all of that together and applied it to holy women who hope in God. On Mother's Day. And now here we are with a new question this morning. And the new question is very simple. It's what you would expect next, I think. What's the content of the hope? What is it out there that we're expecting? And I want to give you five messages in answer to that question, beginning with this morning's message taken from Titus chapter 2 Verse 13, and you'll see it, it's right on the face of the verse, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's the content of our hope according to this verse? What is our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second coming of our Lord. That's our hope. We could get into a lot of controversies here at the outset with regard to the timing of this event in relationship, say, to the millennium or to a period of tribulation at the end of this age. It's sort of an in-house debate among Christians or brother against brother or sometimes son against father. I have another controversy I'm more interested in this morning. Uh, We may take that one up on a Sunday evening sometime. It's valuable, I think, to get your eschatology as precise as possible. I have something more important, though, to enter into. Namely, there are people today who consider the thought of the second coming as an outdated superstition or a mythology, or something that is so utterly unscientific that it is not tenable. You can't hold it in the 20th century any longer with people flying around the moon. We're prepared, for example, to hear Carl Sagan, uh, astronomer from Cornell, say that the second coming is in the same category with the cow that jumped over the moon, That I can handle. That's what I expect from the world, who by definition have said religious language is without meaning. Scientific language that is testable and measurable, handleable. That is the kind of statements that carry meaning. And so you just wipe out these mythological ways of talking. That we can handle. All right, no problem. The problem arises, and the thing that we're not so aware of is that there are people inside the church who think the second coming is outdated, untenable mythology. They teach the church that. For example, in 1950, William Neal at the University of Nottingham Theology faculty there wrote commentary in the Moffat series. He said, the day of the Lord is God's timeless judgment, which is past and present and future. In a sense, it is always to come. In a sense, it is always present. In a sense, it has always been past. Thus, the parousia... That's just a technical word for second coming. Thus, the parousia is like creation in a real sense, timeless, not a historical event, but the underlying purpose of history and the summing up of all things in Christ. Fancy language, but very simply, it will not happen. It will not be a discernible, perceivable, historical event. It has become a kind of symbol above history and outside of history by which we poor historical beings may gain a symbolic sense of hope for the future. Ernest Best, University of uh, Glasgow, professor of divinity and biblical criticism, 1972, in probably the most thorough commentary on the Thessalonian epistles, wrote, we have to conclude that the end is something which men will never have to reckon with in practical terms, again, excluding the possible destruction of our own planet, and that it is as wrong to think of a real physical end which God achieves in some public way as it is to think of a real physical beginning. Well, Carl Sagan, we can handle, we can understand, but... Professors of divinity and pastors in churches who want to to get their religion from the Bible and who want to preserve some kind of dignity for Christ, when they say it isn't going to happen and you may as well not look for it, that's curious. Not only because they are contradicting dozens of biblical texts, but because they are attacking Christ. The very center of our faith. What is the center of our faith? The center of our faith is this. The Son of God became man, clothed himself with humanity, obeyed his Father perfectly, died a real physical death, experienced by the power of God a real physical resurrection was exalted to the right hand of God having made atonement for sin and with all authority under his feet. And someday he will complete the work of redemption by coming back to lay claim to his people and his world. Now if you take the end chapter or the bottom hem and rip it off the fabric of redemption, the whole thing will unravel. A half a salvation is no salvation. Consider a physical incarnation, a physical resurrection, a physical ascension, and then poof, vanish, never to be touched, seen, smelled, Heard on this earth again in some ethereal, spiritual never-never land from which we might get symbolic ideas about how to live better lives. You can see where the attack really is. It's not merely on the end. It's on the beginning. Every schoolboy knows that if a prince comes from a foreign land to a kingdom... Owned by his father, the king, in rebellion, and undertakes to conquer for his father that kingdom, and in the process is taken captive by those rebel forces and killed and enabled by his father to rise from the dead, and is given all authority in heaven and on earth, and then leaves that land, gives over to his revolutionary followers the the weapons of his warfare, and goes back to his father, you know he's coming again. Why would he have come the first time with all authority and power in heaven and on earth, and allowed himself to be destroyed, raised from the dead, create a people for himself, and then just finish. You see, if you attack the end, you attack the beginning. It's all meaningless. The whole fabric hangs together. I'm not sure which is the greater tragedy. A man as brilliant as Carl Sagan, in the image of God, who can be content to see the meaning of life in the evolutionary development of the limbic system and the neocortex of the human brain. Boga's brain. Or whether the greater tragedy is theology professors and pastors who teach the flock of God not to wait for the coming of the sun. Whichever, let us pray for Carl's sake. And all scientists, that God would enable them to see that their materials and their methods have a limit and that they might consider the authenticity of the historical reality of Jesus Christ And let's pray for liberals instead of just, you know, shooting at them. Let's pray for liberal teachers in universities and seminaries and pastors that they might not feel constrained to take a supernatural Christ and squeeze him through a secular sieve so there's just a little remnant of an ethical teacher left over at the other side. And this morning, let's encourage our hearts that there is a blessed hope and it is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's look at it in context, Titus 2.13. First of all, notice in the context here that Paul speaks of two appearings of Christ or two appearings of God. Verse 11, there is an appearing of grace. And verse 13, there is an appearing of glory. Let's read those. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men. That's the first coming of Christ, right? The appearance of grace. Then verse 13, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. It's the appearance of Glory. First grace, then glory. And for Paul, you see how closely these things are united. Notice verse 14. This describes what the upshot or the aim of grace was when it appeared in Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good works. So when the grace of God came into the world in Uh, 2,000 years ago, in the form of Jesus Christ, the aim, the purpose, the upshot of grace was this, that Christ might die, that sins might be covered, sinners redeemed, and into the hearts of repentant sinners there might be put a zeal for good deeds. Do you have a zeal, a passion for good deeds? When you get up in the morning, do you say, what good can I do for God today? How many good deeds can I pack into this 24-hour period for the glory of God and the good of mankind? If you're born of God, there is an impulse of grace in your life, this verse says. 14, namely, a zeal for good deeds. Look at verse 12. I think verse 12 is a way of saying the same thing that verse 14 said. Namely, what's the aim of grace when it appeared? The grace of God appeared, verse 11, then training us. Did you ever think of grace as a trainer in a fitness center? Or a coach? Or a disciplinarian? That's what it is. The grace of God appeared, training us to renounce your religion and worldly passions and to live sober, upright, and godly lives in the world. Now, isn't that the same thing as verse 14? These are two verses that state the purpose of the arrival of grace in human history. The first one says uh, to renounce irreligion and ungodly passions and to live sober, upright, and godly. And 14 says that we might be redeemed of all of our sins and be passionate or zealous for good deeds. Now, what we have here then is a sandwich. All right? We see these sandwiches all the time. Two pieces of bread, verse 12 and verse 13. 14, and the sandwich is the arrival of grace in history, performing redemption, calling out a people, filling them with a passion for good deeds. And the meat in the middle of the sandwich is, verse 13, waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think you could ask Paul to make a a more intimate, tight connection between the coming of grace the first time and the coming of glory the second time. They are integrally bound up. What Christ began at his first coming and his cross, he will consummate at his second coming. Let me show you another passage of Scripture that says this so magnificently. It's just a few pages later in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 9. So, if you want to turn over there with me, uh, Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28 are a, a, just a wonderful putting together of the first and second coming of Christ, the grace and the glory of our Savior. Verse 27, just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, that passage teaches very clearly that Our salvation began with the first coming of grace at the cross when our sins were atoned for, covered with the blood of Christ. But I'm a sinner yet. Am I saved? Yes and no. I am justified by grace through faith. But there is indwelling sin, and there will be until He comes and saves me from it. And if He doesn't, what do they teach as salvation? Leave me in my sin to die like a dog? Well, this text teaches he's coming a second time not to pay for sin again, but to wipe it out of my heart, wipe it out of this world and every structure, establish a kingdom of grace and glory and save us from the wrath to come. I don't see how you can separate them. I don't see how the fabric can be rent and have anything worthwhile left over. Now, notice in verse 28, let's get this real close to the heart, who is going to be saved in that day? It says that he'll come to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And I thought, as I was writing this yesterday, I thought to myself, I wonder
0: if William
1: Neal and Ernest Best tremble when they read that verse. He is coming to save those who are waiting for him. That is all. That is terrifying. Will it not be a terrifying day when Liberal theologians and secularized pastors stand before the Lord and the seat of His judgment and watch Him with their very eyes pull their commentaries out from under His desk or a manuscript of their sermons and open and read the very passages where they taught the bride of Christ not to wait for His coming. What are they going to say? For he is coming to save those who are waiting for him. Now, let's bring it home. Are you waiting eagerly for Christ? I do not mean... Do you believe the doctrine of the second coming? Satan believes the doctrine of the second coming. I mean, is your heart eagerly awaiting his coming? Now, I don't mean, do you think about it all the time? You may be madly in love, but you don't. Think about your sweetheart all the time, a lot of the time, but not all the time, especially if your job involves your mind. What I do mean can be summed up in three questions. Now, here are three questions to ask yourself, to test yourself in this matter. Number one, does your mind return frequently to the reality of his coming. Second, when your mind returns to the reality of his second coming, does your heart want it? Or do you find yourself saying, not soon, please, I have more important and enjoyable things to do? And third, do you pray for His coming? Maranatha! Come, Lord Jesus! is the way the early church prayed again and again and again. Do you pray, maybe not daily, but weekly, that He would come? Wrap it up, Father! Send your son, destroy the evil out of this world. Finish your redemption in my life. Consummate the kingdom. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, you don't have to holler like I do. But pray it. Pray it. So those are three test questions. Peter said in his first letter, to those who believe, Christ is precious. Therefore, the preciousness of Christ to you is the evidence of the genuineness of your faith. And is not your eager expectation of his blessed and personal return for you an evidence of his preciousness? And therefore, is not your eagerness for his coming evidence of the genuineness of your saving faith? You see what's at stake here? This is serious. This is serious. This is not icing on the cake. If you come up short in asking yourself those questions There are three possible explanations. Let me mention them in the ascending order of their seriousness. Number one, it may be that you are saved. That is, that you have believed in Christ as your Savior and Lord, but you've never been well taught about the second coming you have no clear picture in your mind about its glory and greatness and certainty. And therefore, it is ignorance that stands as a roadblock for your affections. Second, it may be that you are born again, saved. That you have believed in Christ as your Savior and your Lord, but you have, in the process of time, grown cold and distant, and recently precious is not a word that you would have used to describe him in your life. When you hear that, you say, I don't feel anything quite like that. There's distance, there's coldness that has come in. And thirdly, perhaps you are not born again and have never tasted the grace of the Lord that it is sweet and good and need to have a heart transplant. The Holy Spirit needs to take out that heart of stone that feels no delight in the coming of Christ and put in a heart of flesh that exalts in the possibility of his coming. Well, whichever of those may be your condition or possibly you are just popping with expectation, let me close with three observations from this text as to why all of us, in whatever state we are, should... Delight in and exult in the second coming. First, it is a blessed, underlined blessed, hope. See that in verse 13? Awaiting our blessed hope. Now, what would you say is the opposite of a blessed hope? I would say that the opposite of a blessed hope is a cursed hope. Which is a contradiction in terms. Just like blessed hope is a redundant phrase. But we use redundancies in order to make points. Namely, this hope has got no curse in it. No matter how awesome or breathtaking or unspeakable that event is going to be on that day, there'll be no curse in it for Christians, but only blessing and blessedness. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, neither now nor when He appears in flaming fire, bringing vengeance upon those who do not know God. No curse, only rest and blessedness. Notice the word that describes the Lord at the end of the verse, our great God and what? Savior. He's coming to save his people from wrath. So number one, you ought to expect and delight in and want it because there's no curse in it. It's all blessing for the people of God. Second, it is a visible hope. Notice the word appearing. The blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. When the Son of God came into the world in Jesus Christ, what did men want to do? Philip says to Nathanael, come see him. You kids, why did Zacchaeus climb up in a tree? To see Jesus, not to pick sycamore nuts. Or Are there sycamore nuts? To see Jesus. Why did the Greeks come to the disciple and say, we would see Jesus? Why did Paul say, now I see through a glass darkly, then face to face. And John, in his first letter, seems to make everything hang on this when he says, we do not know what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him when he comes for We shall see him as he is. I don't want a long-distance phone call from the president on that day. You know what the climax of John Piper's ministry is going to be in who knows when he might come? It's going to be this. I will see with these eyes Transformed in the twinkling of an eye, to be sure, but these eyes nevertheless, the moving of the lips of the king of kings when out of his gracious heart there emerged these stunning words. John. (laughs) My name! He knows my name! John, well done. Good and faithful, sir. I will see him say it. It won't be a long distance phone call. And that's the second reason why everybody in this room ought to want him to come. Because you'll see him. We're going to see him. And third and finally, we ought to want it and expect it and be eager for it because it is a glorious hope. Do you see the word glory? the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. And this is a frustrating theme for a preacher. (laughs) What do you say? What would you say if you had to finish this sermon in two minutes? Well, I'm going to read what an apostle said from the New Testament. I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden girdle around his chest. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Niagara Falls. In his right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth issued a two-edged sword. And his face shone like the shining of the sun in full strength. And he said, I will come in the clouds with power and great glory in the glory of my Father and of the holy angels. And I will send out my angels to the four winds and gather from one end of heaven to the other my elect people. And we will be with him forever to delight in and enjoy the inexhaustible glory of the King of Kings. There is henceforth therefore laid up for me a crown of righteousness, Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who
0: have
1: loved, is appearing. Do you love, is appearing. If not, confess it as sin right now. God, I am sorry my heart is so dead. Number two, pray for the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to quicken or blow upon the embers of that smoldering fire. And third, take yourself with all eagerness to the word and meditate on the blessedness, the visibility, and the glory of that grace.